you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue through the book of Acts. We're going to be picking up in verse 22 of, of chapter 2. And it starts out like this. Remember our context from last week. Peter said, the last days began at the first coming. And the last days will end at a second coming. And the major emphasis was time is running out. And what do you do when time is running out and judgment is coming? We find it in verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless, lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to agony and death, since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of Jesus, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul in Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is right over there to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants, which we know to be Jesus Christ, on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's ask for God's blessing and we'll walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I have one simple request this morning. I pray, Father, that when we leave here, that my church family would not be talking about this message. Father, I pray that we would be talking about your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that you would help me to remember what I studied this week pray that you would guard my tongue, that I would speak with humility and boldness. Father, I confess my sins to you in front of my church family. And Father, I acknowledge that these body, this body of believers belongs to you. They are not mine. And Father, I just ask that your hand of blessing would be upon them. May we be full of joy and gladness 
because we are aware of your presence. And so, Father, I pray this and I ask this in your Son's precious and holy name. And if you're awake this morning, say amen. Amen. All right. In any text, there is both a primary and secondary purpose that that the, the teacher has to kind of look at as we go through God's Word. While both the primary and the secondary purpose may both be true, it is the responsibility of any sound teacher to know and focus on the primary path. The primary path and purpose without neglecting at the same time the kind of, if I could draw a picture here, the secondary flowers of relevant applications and truths. And while sometimes this process is straightforward, there are at times when it is a delicate or technical process. Because in focusing on the secondary applications or the secondary flowers or, or information, we risk the reality of neglecting or straying off the primary path. Today is one of those passages. There are some applications in the peripheral and there is a primary path in front of us. The primary path of this passage is how the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that he is truly the sent one of God. There is a great deal of theology in this. But growing on the side of that primary, if you, if you look at this picture, the path there in this text is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if you just look around, there are a lot of beautiful truths and applications as well. Amy and I love to go hiking, and one thing that I will always say, and sometimes she will say to me, is we will remind ourselves to look up. Make sure that you look up because the path is full of rocks and roots and, and things that you don't want to, to stumble over. And sometimes you get so concentrated on the path in front of you that you don't see the very reason you're on that path. And we say, look up and the, see the beautiful scenery as well. That's what we're going to do today. The primary path here is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So with this in mind, I plan to travel very close to the primary path, which is the resurrection. Yet we will pause in the middle of our walk through this text and look at the flowers and how to keep, and here it is, the flowers is this, how to keep joy and how to keep happiness in our lives. I think for the most part, all human behavior is a search for happiness. All human behavior is a search for joy, if you think about it. We get married because we think that person will bring us joy and happiness. Conversely, there are times when people get divorced because they think on the other side of that decision, they will find what church? Joy, happiness, or maybe relief, alright? We choose our careers. We choose our morality. We choose drugs for the pursuit of relief or escape or happiness. We will practice immorality. We will steal. And yes, there's times when people will even murder because they think on the other side of that decision is about our life. We even do good works towards others sometimes just because it makes us feel good. Yet we find that even after all of these decisions, sometimes joy, I'm going to say more than sometimes, oftentimes joy and happiness can escape us. And I think I may know why, at least for me personally, if I can be transparent for a moment. 
It is because there are times when I have elevated the gifts of God higher than the giver of the gifts. I elevate the gifts of God higher than God himself. And I think we all face this temptation if we're honest about it. The danger of enjoying God's gifts and not the God who gives them to us. It may be why so many of us fail in our walk with Jesus Christ. And to be honest, fail to find true salvation, which by the way is evidenced not in that you have an intellectual understanding of who Jesus Christ is, but that you love the Lord with all your what, church? Your heart. The joy and the love and the happiness that comes from that. John Piper gave a great illustration and he borrowed it from Augustine 16, 14 centuries ago. So I'm not sure whether the credit Augustine or John Piper. We'll go with John this time, all right? Has a great illustration of what we do in the Christian walk in our lives. Imagine if you were going to get married. Who here has recently or is soon engaged in going to be married? Raise your hands. All right. We got a few of us here. Some of them are even more expensive than others for my pocketbook. All right. But imagine if you're going to get married and, and you make a ring for your bride or your spouse. And your bride loves that ring so much that she looks you in the eyes and says, the ring is enough, it's all I want. And they walk away. And they have no need, they have no desire for the one who gave it to them. And she walks away with the ring you give and says, I don't have desire for you, the ring is enough. How in the world would that make you feel? Is this not... Let's be honest for this moment. Is this not what we tend to do in the kingdom of God? We love and pursue the gifts of God, sometimes neglecting to love the very God who gives them. Church, there are many gifts that we get from God that we elevate as more important, whether it be our children, our spouse, our health, our money, our style, our brand. Now you may say, what does this have to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? What does this have to do with Peter's message that saying, tick-tock, tick-tock, the day of judgment is coming? Well, we will unpack it and see. So let us begin in, in our walk through this text, of which the primary purpose is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the application is how to have true joy and happiness in the truth that is the resurrection. So let's take a look at verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, listen to the words of Jesus the Nazarene. A man assisted, uh, attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs, and God performed through his midst, just as you yourselves know. It's only been 50 days since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is fresh in their, their mind. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Oh, which by the way, you nailed him to the cross by the hands of lawless and godless men. We'll study that tonight. And he put him to death, but, but God raised him up again, putting the end of the agony of death, since it was impossible for Jesus to be held by the power of death. First thing I want to highlight here is men of Israel, listen to these words. Once again, we are reminded that responsibility, the responsibility of a good sermon lies not only with the one who is preparing it, but with the one who is listening to it. Again, put your phones away, open the Word of God, 
Get a pen, get some paper, and engage in what we are listening to. Peter starts out with the words, Jesus the Nazarene. This is Jesus' most earthly title, if you will. This is his most earthly name. This, by the way, is the name they would have known Jesus by. When Peter uses his name, he does two things. The first thing he does is he draws attention to Christ's earthly ministry, which he will touch on in a moment when we see here, when he highlights the words miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. He's saying, remember the earthly ministry and let me bring it up with just with a couple words, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus' earthly ministry was filled with undeniable signs that proved he was the Messiah, the sent one of God. The second thing Peter does here is I think he gives us a wonderful uh, template here. He starts his, his point out, all right, with the title and puts Jesus Christ right out in front of them. Jesus Christ is right out in front. He doesn't draw them in with practical and relatable issue. He puts Christ out first. Now you may say, what's the big deal about this? Well, frankly, I think this is rather significant, especially within our day and age. This is huge in today's church because we have lost the focus and the point of our teaching. What does the church try to draw people in with today? Talk, in fact, that's a question. If I can engage your mind, what do people try and draw people in today other than the name and the person of Jesus Christ? What is our carrot? And for those of you who don't like vegetables, what is our cake? Talk to me. You know what? Perfect blend. What is our carrot cake? Talk to me. What do we draw people in with? Pleasure. What's, who said pleasure? Pleasure. All right. We draw them in with pleasure because if there is one thing the Baptist church is known for, it's pleasure. No, I'm teasing, but that's an excellent answer. Anyone else? Music. Yes. I can't stand the teaching, but man, I love the music. Let's move forward. Apparently I'm alone on that, all right? Anything else? Programs. Plays. Social, Paul, just leave me alone, all right? Now, social justice. Anything else as I walk up these stairs? This is, this is, time is running out. We're in the last days. What are some other things? Success. Everyone may, all dogs go to heaven. That's right. I just called you dogs, all right? No, that's not what I'm saying. We try to draw people in with social issues, injustices, programs, family services, social events. And now, a lot of these things, there's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves, but it's gotten to the point that many churches, um, uh, that, uh, that in many churches, Christ is the very last thing on the docket. Because who would come if all we did was push Christ first? Let me, let me make something clear. Let me ask a more important question. Who would be saved if we do not? And what is our purpose? Peter gives the template from the early church in the first expository message from Joel, and soon we'll see Psalms, that Christianity is not a culture. Church affirmed this. Christianity is Christ. It's Christ. 
The church's message should begin with and end with and fill the middle with Christ. For without Christ, Christianity does not exist. All we have is a culture. And look around how many in our world today are engaged in a Christian culture with absolutely no love for Christ. Christian teaching begins and ends in the name of Jesus Christ. Christianity, by the way, finds its goal in Christ. Now I want you to notice Peter here begins his message in verse 22, and he ends the message in verse 36 with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to do here is, because this is a technical passage, I want to put a pin in that for just a moment. Christ is exalted first and in the middle and in the last, all right? And he's bringing out his earthly ministry. Now, hit the pause button on that, and I, want to, I don't want you to throw it away. I just want you to set it over here, because we're going to grab it in a moment. I want to shift gears for just a moment. Because the number one question in the minds of the people listening here today, as 120 people just spoke in tongues, is how in the world could Jesus the Nazarene be the Messiah if he was nailed on a cross and cursed by God? That is why Peter starts out with the words, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, You have nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put them to death. The word foreknowledge here is more than just to anticipate something. The word foreknowledge here means more than just know that something's going to happen. It means, it means more than that. It literally means that God made it happen. God determined to do it. I have a foreknowledge that my daughter will be married in the next, I don't know, five to ten years, okay? As soon as we, I'm going to move forward. I know that she's going to, I have a foreknowledge of that, but that's not what the word is. Mom and I are, give me some words, mom and I are doing what to make sure it happens? Talk to me. Saving. <laughs> yes, we are saving. We're violating God's word, really, is what we're doing, all right? No. We're saving. What are some other things we're doing? We're making phone calls. Well, Amy's making phone calls, all right? What's that? We are preparing. We are making sure it happens because it's time for her to be off my books. But we are happy for the love as well. But Peter doesn't end that here. He says God made it happen. He predetermined it with his foreknowledge. He caused it to happen. But Peter does not end here. He says, he says this, if you believe that Jesus was discredited because he was killed, I love what he does here, then what does the empty grave do? What does the resurrection do? Does it not validate him? And he opens up those words, but God has raised him up. You see, Jesus' resurrection was not some moment that happened long ago like we believe today. You know, we have to look back thousands of years and study God's Word and you have the pre-salvational work of the Holy Spirit and, and we're drawn, the Father draws us and we come to the point where we say, I believe that this happened year, dec- what are the word, thousands of years ago. These people are fresh 50 days of what happened. These people witnessed all the events around the resurrection, the empty tomb, 
Jesus giving many convincing proofs that he was alive. Jesus ate with them. He walked with them. Their hearts burned as they as he talked with them. By the way, dead saints walked the streets of Jerusalem. We find that in Matthew chapter 27. Hence, Peter says the words, and you see it right here, just as you yourselves know. You've seen it. The city's been in chaos during this time. These five words, by the way, just as you yourselves know, are applied to all that follow it. Both the death and the resurrection. Peter says this has always been the predetermined plan of God. And then Peter does what Jesus taught him to do during the 40 days that he was alive after the death and resurrection, before he ascended. Jesus taught them from the Old Testament how all scriptures concerning him. So Peter does that, all right? He does what Jesus taught him to do. He will begin to interpret once again, last week it was Joel chapter 2, this week he will interpret the Old Testament in view of Christology. Remember, the primary way, I want you to grab this, I want you to grab this, whether you attend Trinity or you're just visiting or you attend a different church, you need to grab this. The primary way to interpret the Bible is to ask one primary question, what does this teach me about Christ? What does this teach me about Christ? And then once you have isolated what this teaches you about Christ, I don't care what book you're in, once you have found that, then ask yourself the question, how do I apply this to my life? So Peter shows how David's word in the Old Testament points to Christ. And we find that in verses 25 through 28. And David says to him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart will be glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul in Hades, nor will you allow the Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, once again, just like last week, we see this is in all capital letters because it is a direct quote from the Old Testament. Again, just like Jesus, have you not heard? Is it not written? Have you not heard it said? This is Psalms chapter 16, 8 through 11. If you have your copies of God's Word and you chose to flip there, you would find this, all right? Peter shows that while David is the author of this psalm, and wrote it about how he can have joy in the midst of difficult times, it is primarily a prophetic word, a look forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It had both a now and yet-to-be application. We see it in the words that Peter uses right here. He says this, For David says of him, who is him, the him is Jesus Christ. While on one level, David is writing about himself and what he's experiencing, he is ultimately, on a, on, a, on, a, on a higher level, he is ultimately writing about his future descendant from the line of David, Jesus Christ. For it is about how Jesus will be resurrected from the grave. In fact, you look at the words, because he will not abandon my soul in Hades. Now that word Hades, we're going to unpack that tonight when we dig deeper. He will not abandon my soul in Hades, nor will he allow the Holy One to undergo decay. Now it's important to understand, 
contextually and historically with a little bit of background study on this, that Jews believe that a spirit of a person stayed in the body for three days before it departed. For three days, the spirit would stay in the body. We find that uh, in, in John eleven seventeen and 39. While we know biblically, all right, to be absent from the body is to be present from the, to, with the Lord. We also know that Jesus, before he died, looked at the thief on the cross and said, in three days you will be with me in paradise. Is that what your copies say? What does your copy say? Today. Today, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Today you will be with me in paradise. Culturally, however, to a first century Jew, because Jesus was raised on the third day, to them, his soul did not undergo any decay. You see, what Peter is saying here in short summary is this. We know that this psalm is about Jesus and not David. We know this is about Jesus and not David. And you want to know why I know this? And, and how many here have ever uh, had a, an amazing example of a point you're trying to make? Peter goes, I can tell you why this is about Jesus and not David. And he, and he points his finger in the air in the direction of David's tomb. In fact, you see it in verses 29 through 32. Brethren, I confidently say to you regarding David that he died and he was buried. And answer this question, where is David still to this day? Talk to me, church. He's in the grave. How many here would venture to guess there's been some deterioration over the last 3,000 years? Amen? Peter looks at him and goes, tomb's right there. It's sealed up. This is how we know this isn't about David. David's tomb and his body is still with us. It has seen decay. Jesus' tomb, however, and they all know this, as you yourselves have witnessed, Jesus' tomb is what, church? Empty. Is His body decayed? No, it is glorified, and we've seen it. Now I want to pause here on the primary path. Remember the path? It's about the death and resurrection, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And how it proves he is the Messiah, the sent one. Because his body didn't see decay. It rose on the third day. It is glorified. He is not here. And he's fulfilled Psalm chapter 16. So we're going to pause here on that. And we're going to touch on more of that in the PM. But I want to stop on this path and remind you, just like what Amy do when we, when we go hiking, is we have to look up. Once in a while, you just have to look up at all the flowers that are around in the secondary application. And I want to touch on those, what we began with in our introduction, joy and happiness. Sometimes on the path of interpretation, we have to stop and look at the flowers on the side of the path. And the flowers here are how to find joy and gladness in a world of hurt. Now we are getting some application in our lives. While this psalm is ultimately about Jesus and secondarily about David, both of them show us, now grab this, both of them show us how how to be, check this text out, how to be full of gladness. Let's highlight that. Both of them show us how to be full of gladness. Both David and Jesus were able to find happiness and joy and gladness in a world of hurt. And, and, and I think all of us can relate to this. The need to find joy in a world of hurt. 
I think we all can. And we may say, how can we find a life that is... Or how, let me just start over. I think we can relate to this. How do we find joy in a life that is filled with cheap, empty substitutes and heartbreak and loss? Well, the first one is this. Joy is found, and we find it with David here and Jesus, in constantly knowing that you are in the presence of God. Constantly knowing you are in the presence of God. Look at the phrase here. I saw the Lord always in my presence, for He is at my right hand. I want you to grab those words, at my right hand. In first century culture, bodyguards would stand on the right side of the one they were protecting. And what that would do is that would allow them to put their shield in front of you, all right? And they would still have their right hand free to defend you with their sword. Both David and ultimately Jesus lived every moment to the best of their ability, especially Jesus, aware of God the Father's presence. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Both Jesus and David ultimately could find joy even in the midst of trials because they knew God was present with them and using their trials for His glory. That is why the book of Hebrews, which some of you are studying in Sunday school, or ACE, all right, the book of Hebrews says, for the joy set before Jesus, He endured the cross. Now, let me be clear. There is no joy in being crucified. However, knowing God had a great purpose and His presence brought joy to Jesus. And this is a huge thing because a lot of times we think the joy and the goodness of God and the gladness of God will eliminate trials, tribulations, and hurt, which is simply not true. Biblical joy and gladness do not deny sorrow and grief. It was a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I went and um, buried our good friend, Jeremy Stock, 44 years of age, good health. We traveled down there, and some of you may know or don't know, Jeremy and Mindy, we were very close in our first church. They were youth ministry with us. We played together. We walked together. We ate together. Uh, We got very close. Had an opportunity to lead Jeremy to the Lord. Had an opportunity to baptize him and identifying with Jesus Christ. Had an opportunity to marry him. And then a couple of weeks, bury him. It brought great grief to Amy and I to weep with his widow and our friend Mindy to see his children without a father. But we can find sustaining joy in those tears and that Jeremy is with Jesus. And that the friendship I had with Jeremy is just a taste of the full reality of the friendship I will have with Jesus one day to see past it. The first thing we can do to find joy and gladness in a world of hurt is to cultivate the presence of God in our lives. In fact, secondly, it says, I want to point out here, they cultivated God's presence in their life. And here it is, by by relating everything. Everything, all the way down to the smallest detail in life, to God's presence and providence. We see these in the words, You have made known to me the ways of life. Everything that happens in our lives, from the big to the small, is in the control of an all-powerful, sovereign God in whom all things rest. 
Now, a lot of times, I, I'm, I'm kind of analytical sometimes, and I, I like to be technical, and, and, and words have meaning, and all of that stuff. And I, I will tend to dismiss the, the smaller details of life than th- that are, that rather than the large things. I want to be transparent with you here. I am not good at remembering God's presence in all little microscopic details. However, my wife is very good at this. She always sees God's presence in the smallest things. The smallest things. I'm going to give you a real life example here that happened just a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, Amy and I uh, borrowed a convertible from someone in the church. Is that someone here at all? To make sure that okay, they're not they're not here. So Amy and I bought a convertible recently. All right, no, we didn't. And, and we were enjoying ourselves, and we were heading to the beach to watch the sunset with our children. And we got in that car, and Amy said, and I got permission to share this. All right, Amy said, you know what? Let's get a picture of us in in the convertible. That is how boring our lives are. All right. And she takes her camera, and I'm driving, all right, and she's over. In fact, let's put that picture up here. We take this picture, and there we are. Could we not look more cool? <laughs> Where's David? David, Tyler, I'm cool, all right? Now, so she takes the camera, and she's like, smile, honey. And I'm, I'm safety conscious, okay? I'm not, I'm not, I don't even know if I'm necessarily looking at the camera there. But she says, let's get a picture. And she accidentally pushes the camera past the protection of the windshield, the wind catches it, and the phone... Now, now, before, don't hit it yet. We're going down the highway. This is I-96 on the way to 131, which will bring us to 96 west towards Holland, which is where we got engaged 20-some-odd years ago. She pushes the phone out there. The wind catches it, and at 75 miles an hour, the phone just goes... Boom! And we can hit the picture here. And here's a picture, an actual picture that the phone took while bouncing down the highway. And I'm looking in the rear view mirror and I see this phone. It's not going to the side in either direction. It's just tumbling down the center of the road. And there's trucks and there's cars behind us. And my first thought as a Dutchman is what church? This woman you gave me, Lord! And it's bouncing, and it's bouncing, and it's bouncing, it's taking pictures. And I pull over to the side of the road, and we literally, because we have priorities in our lives, I drive backwards on the shoulder, we get out of the car, there's, you know, vroom, vroom, vroom. Actually, they were just going in one direction, all right? Vroom, vroom, vroom. <laughs> and, and we're waiting, and finally we find the phone. And I'm irritated. Because I don't see the presence of God in that moment. I see the hand of Satan. Can I get a witness at all? We get in the car and I'm irritated. And Amy says, we should be thankful. God could be sparing us from a catastrophic accident right down the road that we would have gotten into if I hadn't have dropped this phone. <laughs> Who knows what could, be, could have happened to us. God is protecting us. And I'm looking at her like, are you stinking kidding me? But Amy's gladness is not moved, even though she holds a broken phone. 
As she holds a broken phone on the side of the highway, her happiness is not moved because she likes to see God's presence in every little situation. And I'm telling you, in the name of all that is holy and true, it's annoying. Sometimes in my sinful flesh, and this is true in every little area, who knows, you know, one time we, we, we got uh, stuck in traffic and we couldn't get to the uh, store at times. She's like, well, maybe we're stuck in traffic because there's going to be an armed robbery and the Lord is protecting us from the gun. <laughs> but sometimes in my sinful flesh, I want to use this gift she has against her. And I say things like, maybe God wants my socks on the table. <laughs> you ever thought about that? How about that little detail? You see the hand of God in that little detail? Maybe God wants my socks on the table because He's teaching you His soteriological perseverance through my unharried progressive sanctification. Chew on that. You know how tiresome it is to be married to someone who is more godly than you? It's exhausting. Why are you laughing? Okay. To see God's presence in every little detail. Finally, a good way to cultivate God's presence in your life is by spending time with Him in prayer. You may say, where is that in the text? I don't, I don't see that in the text. Here it is. It is the text. It's the whole text there. This whole psalm is a prayer from David about how he rejoiced in the presence of God daily. If you want joy, spend time in prayer and in his word. Stephen Cole adds a great point. Even if it's a very short, brief moment in time, get up early enough and meet with God before you head out the door. Acknowledge his presence. So I want to pick these flowers and hold them all in our hands before we move forward on the primary path, which is the purpose of Christ's resurrection, and we'll marry them in a moment. The flowers here are about how to find joy in gladness. And the way to do that is to remember and cultivate God's presence into every area of our lives, even down to the smallest details, to the moment that we wake up. In fact, David comes right out and says it, You will make me full of gladness with your what church? presence. So here's our homework this week. I want to ask you, no matter how brief it is, start each day with a short prayer. Acknowledge God's presence in your life. He stands at your right side with His shield of eternal protection around you. Acknowledge God's control even in the smallest areas of your life from the food that you eat to the tire that goes flat to the toe that you stub to that raise you get at work. He is in control of all ways in life. Because our joy, and here, here's where the application comes together, about talking about that ring uh, that the bride gave or that groom gave earlier, because our joy is not dependent on the gifts of God that come and go, but rather on the presence of God Himself. Oh, that we would remember that the gifts of this world are but rays of light, but God is the sun. Our health might be a wonderful creek, but God is the river. 
money may be the drops of water, but God is the ocean. And when we realize that the gifts are, are not as important as the, as the giver, we can say with Jesus, and we can say with David, you will make me full of goodness and gladness with your presence. It's all that I need. Oh, what a beautiful bouquet of flowers we have as we walk along this path. Here's the question before we get back on the path. What makes you happy? What makes you glad? Is it when everything is exactly the way you want it? Is God's presence all we need? Do we see Him in every detail? Do we start our day in His presence? Or are we like the spouse we started with in the message and say to God, all I want is your rings. I don't desire the groom. Oh, no wonder joy escapes the religious. Now with that in mind, let's close by walking back on the primary path of this text, which is the resurrection proves Jesus is the Messiah. Verses 32 through 36. And we'll go through this quickly. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has pulled forth this, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear, tongues, Holy Spirit. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Time is ticking, last days. Therefore, Let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I want to draw your attention to the very last words here. This Jesus whom you crucified. Talk about, we talked about this Wednesday in our breaking ground. Talk about how to make friends and influence enemies. He ends with this, and you killed him! I mean, think about that. How does that just draw people in? Can you imagine if we put that out on the sign in the front of church right there? Hey, everybody, you killed him. Services at 11. (laughs) Peter says this, and here's the point. You're guilty. We'll unpack this more tonight. You're guilty of rejecting the true Son of God. My friends, this is an important point, and here it is. And here it is. You cannot repent unless you first know you're guilty. Amen? You can't repent if you don't know you're on the wrong side. And Peter literally says at the end of this point here, you're on the wrong side. The contemporary church spends much of its time emphasizing the love and the acceptance of God. And by the way, this is true. God is love. God is long-suffering. God is patient. And He is willing that none would perish. But oh, by the authority of God's Word, may we remember that God's love and His acceptance comes through repentance. And there can be no repentance unless we first know we are guilty of our sins. My friends, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We are born on the wrong side. We are guilty and dead in our sins. My friends, repent and place your faith in the resurrected Son of the living God. 
Because if you do so, not only will you have salvation so rich and so free, but look at your hands. Do you see those flowers we picked along the way? You can live a life full of gladness, not because everything is exactly the way you want it, but because of His right hand, shield, carrying, sovereign presence in every little area of your life, all the way down to the broken cell phone. You're full of joy, not because you experience beams of goodness, but because you know the sun. Not because there are drops of blessing, but because you swim in the ocean. Not because our toes are, are, are dipped in the creek of comfort, but because we are washed in the river of life. Never be content with the rings. Love the groom, Jesus Christ. Do you love Him? Do you have this? Next week, Peter doesn't even give an invitation. The crowd would literally say, what must we do then? Oh, to have a moment of that in the church. Tonight we will discuss this even deeper as we dig deeper into the text. There is so much more here. I invite you back this evening. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beautiful flowers, but ultimately thank you for the path. The resurrection is not what made you the Messiah. It was because you were the Messiah that the resurrection happened. You are God, we are not. You are holy. We need your holiness. We're on the wrong side. We need your forgiveness. Father, work in our lives in such a way that whether it be this week or next, we say the words, what must I do? Father, we love you. May you bless your word. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I invite you guys back tonight as we dig deeper. But with that being said, you are dismissed. I love you all very much. God bless. Except for you.